Dr. Amalia Ganyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us today in studio in Johannesburg is the South African Minister of Public Service and Administration, Ayanda Dodlo. Before her appointment to this portfolio, she served terms as Minister of Home Affairs as well as Minister of Communications and was the Deputy Minister of Public Service and Administration from 2010 to 2017. She is a former Secretary General of the Nkonto Wasizwe Military Veterans Association and on the academic side, she holds several postgraduate qualifications in management development, business management and executive development programs. Welcome to the show, Minister. Thank you so much. Good to be here. It's such a pleasure to finally host you here on our show, given all of the different portfolios Mm -hmm. that you've worked across. To start with, you've served South Africa for many years and across various positions. Can you share with us a few of the most important landmarks in your career? Well, I started working for government in 2000, but I started working for the people of South Africa at the age of 17, as part of the liberation movement. Uh, My first job in government was as head of department for the Department of uh, Safety and Security in Gauteng, and I moved on to join the defunct uh, uh, Directorate of Special Operations, which was popularly known as the Scorpions, and I think those years were the best uh, of my years in terms of uh, growth and development. But previously, I worked because I studied logistics. I worked as a, as a, a cartage manager in City Deep, uh, which was part of Transnet, and I've worked at the container terminal in the port of Cape Town. So my career spans across different um, sectors of our economy, from port operations to rail operations, um, law enforcement, communications, uh, home affairs, births, deaths, the registration of all of that. And currently in this portfolio, it's something that uh, I had started in 2010, as you rightly say, as Deputy Minister, gone the full circle. I'm now the Minister for Public Service and Administration. It's such a diverse mix, which I'm sure gives you an incredible perspective of Mm. of the many, both the challenges as well as the opportunities that that face the country. It does. It does. So we've spoken about the past, looking Mm. towards the future. Are there any particular milestones that you want to achieve? Well, the biggest one for me now is uh, I'm working together with the labor and uh, the department and other departments that are stakeholders in this in establishing a fully-fledged government employee housing scheme. For me, this is very important because it gives uh, access to housing opportunities, to housing uh, opportunities for people who otherwise would not qualify for for either a subsidy or qualify for a bond. And as you would know with public servants, you find a lot of them are heavily indebted and do not uh, qualify for housing bonds. So we're in the process of uh, fully setting up a government employee housing scheme and we're looking at ensuring that uh, because of the numbers that we could leverage on 1.3 million employees of state, that we could look uh, well below prime minus two or prime minus three. My um, target is prime minus five, 
and also in terms of other products that the financial services sector offers, we'd like to look at the most favorable tariffs or rates for our employees. Well, you are the biggest employer of the country. Yes. And I think that's uh, an incredible, it's an honorable initiative to ensure that people have access to housing Mm -hmm. that's not just a rental, that it becomes something that's legacy and enduring. Yes, ownership, because that you can't take away from anybody. And that as well could serve as collateral when people want to veer off into different careers or into business or anything to that effect. And it it also makes them a little bit more liquid than they would uh, otherwise be if they did not own any property. So ownership of property is very important for every citizen. And that is why our government, when the ANC came into power, it started a process of ensuring that those that are amongst the poorest of the poor get access to houses. And this is an extension of what was started by uh, Joe Slovo many, many years ago, of ensuring that every South African citizen who is of, um, of age is able to gain access and own their own property. Property rights are very important. And as we're a gender-based show, obviously looking at the, the dynamics of population, mm-hmm. we've, we're slightly biased towards women, so obviously this, um, the housing initiative would apply to them. But are there any specific projects underway that the target women? Well, I think any program that we look into as government has women at the center of it because we are a an organization as government that is sensitive to the plight of women, but also in terms of equality. Uh, we've come a long way as a society where black women would, were not allowed to own property. So this is one of the ways of saying to our black women that you can actually own property. For the longest of time, it's been very difficult, and we're only availing that opportunity and making access a little more lighter and easier for them. We've spoken about home turf, as it mm-hmm. were, but we are operating in a global connected sure. society. And part of the, the Department of Public Service and Administration's mission is to contribute towards improved public administration in Africa and internationally through dialogue and sharing of best practices, mm-hmm. as, as I quote from, from the website. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us how does the continent feature in the department's strategic plans? We are one of the founding members of the Africa Peer Review Mechanism, which is an instrument that uh, ensures um, accountability uh, in the public sector for the whole of the continent. We're also um, on the steering committee of the Open Government Partnership, which is the international equivalent of the Africa Peer Review Mechanism. So with regards to accountability and good governance, we are at the center of it both at a, at a uh, continental level, but also on an international platform. We're also responsible for, amongst others, as part of the Open Government uh, Partnership, to ensure that governments are able to meet their ab- obligations with regards to the Sustainable Development Goals. As you would have known in the past, uh, the Millennium Development Goals were not fully implemented, so it becomes part of our responsibility, as we had pledged with the United Nations, to ensure that that becomes affected in countries across the continent, but across the globe in general, because even the APRM has now taken on that responsibility of monitoring and evaluating the implementation of those sustainable development goals. And when we're talking APRM, that's the Africa Peer, Peer Review, Review Mechanism. Mechanism. Yeah. And with SDGs, they're so interconnected and, and interdependent. Mm-hmm. One of the other aspects which 
must say as a as a show we we're quite um we, we promote or are strong advocates of is about building female leadership capacity. Mm-hmm. It's important for the future of women. It's important for women uh, countries across mm-hmm. continents. Last year in October, Sahaile Work Zoede was appointed as Ethiopia's first female president. And currently, Ethiopia is the only country in the continent to have a sitting female president. In the past, we had Liberia, we had Malawi, mm-hmm. we had Mauritius. How do you see female leadership in the continent in general? Well, for female leaders that have been in power, they have proved beyond doubt that they can change the world. Um, we, for instance, in South Africa, uh, have a lot of women who sit in executive positions, both uh, as public servants, but also as public office bearers, in cabinet, in parliament, and uh, the judiciary is not looking too bad either. So as, as a country, when it comes to gender parity, we're doing quite well. There is much more that we can do, and uh, we are striving towards uh, a goal of ensuring that there is gender uh, parity in the workplace across the, across the board. It doesn't look too good in the private sector. It doesn't, Minister. And we, we as government try to be trendsetters, but there are certain trends that the public sector just does not want to follow, and this is one of them. But we have uh, female leaders in academia that have really proved their mettle beyond doubt that they can perform as well as men, if not better than men. You have a few women in the private sector as well that one could... Uh, talk to to say this is what we've, we see is happening in terms of ensuring that women are at the center of any organization. But I must say that government has done better than the private sector has done. I think government's outstanding. The last time I looked at inter-parliamentary union figures, I think we had around about between 42 to 44 percent female representation. But also only because the ANC is serious about gender parity. Because if you look across the opposition opposition, um, um, side, you will see that gender parity is not as good. Uh, The party that comes closest to what the ANC would look like in parliament is the EFF. The DA is dismal. Any other party, for that matter, is dismal when it comes to that. So the world over, we are known as a, as a parliament that looks good and looks right in terms of gender parity. And that can only be attributed to one party, and that is the African National Congress. You're 100% right. Mm-hmm. You've raised the issue on the private sector. Mm-hmm. How, how do you think we can transform that picture within the private sector to look more like the public sector with regards to gender parity? Well, there has to be that will from the, from the captains of industry to ensure that those that come through are representative of the demographic of, the, of this country. Because it's not just about women, it's also about younger people, the youth that need to be brought into the fold with regards to the economy, with the way that we run government, the private sector, the public sector in general. We need to see a change. Now, if companies do not adhere to the requirements to change the complexion but also to change the gender of senior management Government should actually impose penalties, but those penalties must be so stringent that it is not an option for companies to go for the penalty rather than meet 
the, the, the necessary need of the country of ensuring that they bring more women on board. I know for a fact that when, we, when, when the ANC came into power, we had affirmative action as a, pro, as a program. Now, how far are we? I think we've come to a point where we've become complacent on those type of programs. And those programs are not about ensuring that black people are brought, in, brought into the mainstream of the workplace and also of the economy, but also of women. But I don't think we've done exceptionally well when it comes to ensuring compliance by the private sector on bringing women into senior positions in the workplace it and also in the boardrooms. It yeah. is unfortunate, but I, I guess that means that we've got to work on solutions. We should. We should. But also ensure compliance. Yes, and I think it was... About 2013, there was the, the gender equality legislation, uh, the, I think it was called the Wedgie Bill, which was supposed mm-hmm. to, to come in, which eventually fell through, um, fell through Parliament and it, it wasn't passed. But that seemed to have punitive measures in place. We still have employment equity policies that are in place. And employment equity means let's look at transforming the workplace to reflect and mirror the demographics of our country. The only problem is that we do not enforce Mm. compliance to those policies that we have set ourselves. The the penalties are easy for companies to pay out because they're not as stringent as to be a deterrent. They are happy to pay that penalty without necessarily feeding uh, into what is expected of them by the employment equity uh, policies that we have in place. And now that you raise that point, I also recall reading that from our, if we, we look at this from a parity point of view, not just about the representation of women, but from a point of view on remuneration, mm-hmm. that on average, mm-hmm. women were being paid 23% less than their male counterpart salary for doing the same role. And that's, that's not what you see in government, you see. And I, that's why I said to you that we set the trend, but unfortunately, we do not police implementation of very progressive trends like that of ensuring that people get paid equal money for equal uh, equal pay for equal uh, equal work. So we might want to do that, and we actually do it in government, but the rest of uh, South Africa does not do that. And that's something that's been in place for many years. It has been. It has been. On the 8th of March, which has just passed by, women across the world celebrated International Women's Day. And the theme was Think Equal, Build Smart, innovate for change. Given all of your experiences to date, in your opinion, what do you think we need to build on the most to benefit women for the future? Well, our four bears, like Mamo Albertina Sisulu, whose centenary we celebrate, continue to celebrate, uh, the likes of Winnie Mandela, and there are many women across the world, Rosa Parks, uh, Betty Chabaz, uh, Coretta Scott King. The list is endless. I mean, there are so many people that we could be looking up to as women of today to, you know, take a leaf from their lives, to see what it is that we can do individually and jointly as women to ensure that we move from where we are to a different uh, plane, to ensure that all women get what is due, what is due to the women folk in terms of, as you say, equal equal pay for equal work, um, access to opportunities in the workplace, um, dealing with the gender-based violence, ensuring that uh, single parents, single mothers get support 
from the fathers of their children to make sure that their children are maintained. So there's a whole host of things that we need to be doing to ensure that in this millennium, women do get what is due to them in terms of ensuring that uh, they look after their children, they look after themselves and, and actually have the time to me time to ensure that you look after yourself as well. Looking ahead, if all of those interventions were to come into fruition in 10, 20 years' time, what do you think our, our landscape would look like in terms of gender equality? A female president, a female um, chief justice. We already have had female speakers of parliament, a female um, CEO of uh, the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, female CEO of Anglo-American, the list is endless. That's what I think we would see in the next 20 years, but we need to put our shoulders to the wheel to ensure that that actually does happen. Because not only does will it make you and I feel good about who we are as women, but it will be a message to young girls that you can get to that level, the highest level, to the apex of any company, of any organization that you want to be in. We have uh, Pumzile Mlambunguga, who is in the UN. That is beyond South Africa. That is beyond uh, any country. It is at the world stage that we see the former deputy president of our country actually playing a leading role in advancing the aspirations and hopes of women across the world, silencing the guns being one of them, and looking at uh, issues of uh, gender-based violence from a cultural perspective, but also from all perspectives, including the workplace. Thank you. That's a very powerful statement and answer, and I, I look forward to seeing that, that future materialize for women. Today, we're talking to the South African Minister of Public Service and Administration, Ayanda Glotlo. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. In the previous segment of the conversation, Minister spoke about some of the interventions that she's undergoing uh, within her department, particularly emphasizing the, the access and availability of housing schemes to, to government. We also spoke in terms of the, the transformation that we're seeing within the, the gender empowerment space and looking at, more importantly, how to implement existing legislation and to, to have a punitive effects if legislation is not adhered to. Minister, we're moving on to the second part of the show, which turns to more of a, a personal reflection. You left South Africa in 1980, when you were only 17 years old, to join Mkonto Wasizwe in Angola. Thereafter, you served in various camps in Angola. You received training in Moscow. Casting back to that time, can you please share with us a few of the things that moved you and stood behind you during the extensive work that you were involved with in those early years? Well, as a 17-year-old child, you'd want to be with your parents, but you find yourself in a situation where you have to make the most difficult choices in your life, and that would have been, in my case, that choice of leaving home to fight for the liberation of all of South Africa. Now, that was very difficult, but getting into a family of liberators in the African National Congress was a learning experience for me, that's when I learned that you can rely on the next person for your life, 
for your very existence. The love was phenomenal. When you blurted the word comrade, it really meant comrade. It was something that could take, someone that could take a bullet for you, someone that could lay your life so that you could be able to be free. So that period of my life taught me a lot about love, love for my people, love for the things that I do, love for myself too, but also for those around me. And it's, uh, it's a priceless experience that I would never, never uh, regret, and I'm happy that I had to go through that. Well, looking at where we came from, looking at the work that you invested with your, your fellow comrades mm-hmm. in arms, and reflecting on where we are today, do you think our youth understand the types of sacrifices and, and the long journey that their parents made in order for South Africa to be a truly democratic country? You know, sometimes I feel like our youth decide, has just decided we really don't care where you come from. And that's, that's the general feeling that I get. I'm not sure whether I'm reading the mood right or is it just despondency based on the fact that people would like to see more coming from an ANC government. Uh, but I think there are sections of our youth that really understand where we come from, that really appreciate where South Africa comes from and appreciate where South Africa is, uh, which then means that as a government and as a ruling, as the ruling party, we shouldn't find ourselves in a situation where we become complacent, but also our youth should never take for granted where others come from, looking at where we are today. I mean, in, in, the, in, in 25 years, I think we've done tremendously well. There's a lot that could still be done. There's a lot that could have been done if certain things were done differently. But you must remember that the ANC had never led a government before. The ANC had never been a governing party before. It was almost like we learn as we go. It was a pay-and-go type of situation. We made mistakes in the process. We uh, lifted ourselves by the bootstraps. In a lot of instances, we acknowledged and we move, we move forward. And I think that's what we need to, compl- to strive for continuously, that we, lay, we left graves of comrades in Angola that we cannot even access today. There are families who still have not found closure because their loved ones have never been brought back home to be buried. There are still those even here in shallow graves in South Africa who were buried by the enemy that families have not, never been able to get access to the remains so that they could at last found, uh, found closure. So there are many families who are the walking wounded, who still have the pain of the past, but have opted really to take it in their stride and uh, accept life as it is. It's a painful thing for any family to not know where the bones or the remains of their loved ones are, but that's the history that we come from. And I always hope that people will remember that that is the history that we come from. It's not a history of... Uh, of roses, it's not a history of rose water, it's not a history of oud or any other nice smelling scent. It is a history that smells of blood, it's a history that smells of death, it's a history that smells of sweat. It really doesn't smell nice. Very poignant words. How can we ensure that people don't forget history, that people know their roots? And it's not just a case of, oh, We've got Human Rights mm-hmm. Day that we're celebrating. Yeah. The, what, what does it mean? It's not a day off. It's not just this is another day in the calendar. 
how can we make that the make sure that the memories live on not not to draw people down but so people don't forget mm. well we've been told many times as black people that we need to move on and forget about the past i'm not i'm not prepared to do that i'm it's not roots. i'm not willing to do that my past is me exactly. and i can't leave a part of me behind as i chug along and move forward that past always comes with me that past is what i reflect on to ensure that i am better than what i was 20, 30 years ago. That past is very important to me. And I just hope that young South Africans would reflect on that past, even if they did not live that past. That past is still a part of them. So they would need to understand that. Let's find ways. I mean, history, I don't even know if history is effectively taught in school for our children to understand where we come from. This history is not just about one party. This history is about the people of South Africa. Today, you are a role model. Am I? Of course you are. Look at these different <laughs> roles that you've, you've played. You've been in the public sector. You've been in the private sector. 17 years old, you were out fighting for our country. So you are a role model. Thank you. You've provided evidence to many women and girls, and I'm sure that adorable little girl of yours that we mm-hmm. saw earlier today, that with hard work and personal sacrifice, everything can be achieved. But in order to make those achievements, there are challenges that undeniably you've, you've gone through. Mm. Could you share with us what some of those gender challenges have been and importantly, how you've managed to overcome them so people can learn from your lessons mm. as opposed mm. to mm. walking the hard, hard journey themselves? Many people don't know that I am actually shy. I put up a very brave face and I put up a very overbearing demeanor when in actual fact I'm a very shy person. And that that has been deliberate because if I remain in my shell and I'm shy, I wouldn't get anywhere. Um, I make sure that uh, my voice is heard not only through audio, but also through visual. I act the part. I do not only speak the part, but I also act the part. And acting the part sometimes is more powerful than speaking to what you would want to do or what you would want to be. Be that. Let everybody else see that she puts in 12 hours instead of 10 in her work, that uh, she's very serious about performance. She's very serious about her integrity. I falter along the way. I make lots of mistakes along the way. But in those mistakes, I learn. And I hope that uh, people would see me for who I am, that as I make those mistakes, I'm able to correct, to self-correct, and move on to a better place to ensure that those that look up to me understand that I am as fallible as all as everybody is. Because I do also don't want to give the impression that I'm a superwoman. I'm not. I'm very gullible. I'm also uh, very emotional. I tend to hurt very easily, but I find a way of, do, of, of dealing with that. And a way of dealing with that is to say, I can't be absorbed in shallow feelings. There are bigger things out there to move on to. I will hurt, but I'll move on. I will cry, but I will wipe these tears. I will feel tired, but I will energize at some point. So as you move in life, 
you need to be cognizant of the fact that you are just like everybody. You are, have feelings, you are fallible, you make mistakes, you make bad choices, you, make all sorts, you do all sorts of things in life that make you the human being that you are. Your mistakes, your failures are what make you because if you do not learn from that, then you're just as good as dead. You've got a very pragmatic approach, but also talking about the, the true humanism Mm. Of of who we are, that uh, we are not superwoman, and I often think that's a mistake many women take on forgiveness because you still have to start with yourself for the mistakes that you make. Be able to forgive yourself so that you are able to move forward. One of the questions that I ask all my guests on the show who've made tremendous achievements in their respective fields of work. Mm is about the factors that they consider to have contributed to their success. Some people speak about perseverance, others talk about hard work, or a particular person in their life. Could you share with us, in your opinion, what have been some of the the key factors to your success? I think for me the most important thing is that I have a serious phobia for failure, and that is what guides me in life more than anything. I mean, I have been in positions that I've held very senior positions without a formal uh, college uh, degree. Um, I've done my best to ensure that uh, I do not fail in the things that I do, and if I do fail, I learn from that. So I think my my greatest lesson in life, or my greatest lodestar in life, was this weakness of failure and my fear for failure. So I, I always try and put my best foot forward. I always try to surround myself with people that are smarter than me because I can only learn and leverage on their brains to ensure that I look good and I also ensure that I'm able to deliver on the expectations of those that I report to and those that look up to me. So surrounding yourself with the best of the best, you know, you will find them. You will find a way of, of, of getting to those people. Do not be intimidated by the fact that they're smarter than you. You can only learn and grow in the process. That sounds as though that's part of a learning that came through with the liberation movement of being together, of being in this collective, of really trusting one another. Because around you, you're just as good as those around you. On your own, there's nothing that you can do much. You always need people. And And as I say in the African saying, so if, if you do not have people around you, then you're just as good as not being there because you are what you are because of others. Very profound. On the people's side, who would you say have been some of the strong women in your life? My grandmother. my late, Actually, both of my grandmothers. My maternal grandmother and my paternal grandmother. They have been a pillar of strength to my parents in a very difficult apartheid setup. And uh, I've, I've had beautiful, wonderful parents that have been very supportive of me. And they could only have been that supportive, that loving, because of the mothers that they had. I have got a wonderful mother who is phenomenal, very supportive as well. Um, And I'm just surrounded with uh, female friends who will kill for me, so to speak, Um, but who always tell me when I'm wrong. They... They don't have a, a minister friend. They've got Ayanda, who's their friend, and when she's wrong, she's wrong. So I learn a lot 
and as I said, I surround myself with friends that are much smarter than me. So I learn from them as well. Can you share with us, growing up, what were some of the most pivotal moments in your life? I've seen the dark side of a family separating, but I've seen the most beautiful side of a family that is together. My parents, when they were together, were the best that I could ever have asked for. They gave me the best education. They gave me the best lessons in life. They gave me the best support that has taught me to give the same to my children. Uh, they gave me love. They gave me exposure. Um, and this is why I feel the pain of those children that do not know a life of living with both parents and learning from both parents what it is like to be a parent and also to be a child in a family. The family is one of the most basic things that any child requires because you get the, be the best of both worlds. Uh, so those single mothers out there who try their very best uh, to give that which could have been given by two parents, I really take my head off to them. It has to be the most difficult thing because I've, I've seen it. I've uh, seen both worlds, that of a very loving family and a broken family at the same time. So that becomes very important for any child growing up. Access to family is very important. So that, that nurturing component yeah. and... For, from both a father and mm. a mother figure uh, because they nurture differently. They do, and as much as a mother tries to compensate for the lack of a father figure, mm. it's never the same. It, it never will be the same, yeah. But lastly, as we close out our conversation today, could you please share a few words of inspiration uh, or words of wisdom that you'd like to pass on to young ladies on the continent who are, are listening to us? Oh, that's a difficult one. I've made many mistakes in life. I've listened to all sorts of advices, some of them good, some of them bad. But I think your, your gut feeling, I've learned, is what you should always go by. In, in some instances, it um, lets you down. But in a lot of instances, your gut feeling is the most important feeling that one needs to go by that. But at the same time, adaptation to the environment and situations, learn to adapt very quickly if you find yourself in an uncomfortable or in an unfamiliar environment. Because as they said, say about the dodo, the dodo died because it could not adapt. And adaptation becomes so much more important for any person in an environment you're not familiar with or an environment that is forever changing. And that's our world today. That is. that is. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your contribution today and for, for spending time on the show with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I come to the studio without Elungi Dawiti, who really, really has been a pillar of strength to some of us even in exile when he was working with uh, Radio Freedom and the DIP. So we've learned a lot from many, many people, male and female, young and old, those that uh, reported to us, those that led us. Um, yeah, 
let's let's think of Lungi in whatever it is that we do in our workplace. Thank you very much for that special memory, words of remembrance for Lungi Deweti. Thank you. We appreciate it. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to the South African Minister of Public Service and Administration, Ayanda Glodlo.